Good morning. Bonjour tout le monde. Uh, welcome. My name is uh, Daryl Lynn Ross. I think most of you were here last night, uh, but there might be some who weren't. So we're going to just uh, welcome you again um, uh, very warmly and, uh, and just say a few words about uh, the logistics. Um, when we, we welcome you to this wonderful event of True North Insight, we warmly welcome Joseph. Uh, Joseph has been both an inspiration and a support uh, for True North Insight from the very beginning. And he continues to support us uh, so beautifully in being here with us today, last night and today. Um, when, when, when you have people into your home uh, and you welcome people, you say, uh, you welcome each one by name. And, um, and that's personal in particular. And, uh, and we would, we can't do that, but uh, I would like to welcome each one of you on behalf of True North Insight um, and let you know that no matter what reason you're here, why you've come, uh, what your personal history is, what your, your background is, uh, whether you are, uh, whatever your ethnicity or language or religious background or however you... Um, you may uh, identify in terms of gender or sexual orientation. Um, however, whatever your ability uh, or disability is, uh, you, are, you belong here, you, you're welcome, and we're so happy that you're with us. Uh, so I'm gonna pass it to Pascal to... Uh, donc. Quelques mots en français. Bienvenue à tout le monde. Euh, euh, encore une fois, quelle que soit votre origine, langue maternelle, l'histoire de votre peuple, euh, euh, vous êtes bienvenue ici euh, sur ce territoire euh, Mohawk non cédé. Euh, et donc, quel que soit votre genre, en, encore une fois, orientation sexuelle, votre... Euh, poids, grandeur, âge, euh, capacité physique, etc. Tout le monde est absolument bienvenu ici. Euh, euh, aussi, euh, une chose que j'ai dite hier soir que j'aimerais répéter aujourd'hui, c'est euh, euh, bien d'être conscient qu'on est dans un champ de générosité en ce moment. Hein. Vous avez acheté des billets qui servent à soutenir un organisme. Joseph est là généreusement, ça fait plusieurs fois qu'il vient, il donne son temps euh, Absolument gratuitement, là, généreusement. Alors, tous les enseignements auxquels on a droit aujourd'hui sont offerts généreusement. Puis, il y a tous les bénévoles qui sont là, euh, une quantité incroyable de bénévoles. Là, de Tout le long, quand on arrive, il y a quelqu'un qui, qui vous a souri. Alors, les bénévoles, si vous voulez vous lever, même les bénévoles, on pourrait vous, euh, vous identifier un peu. Puis, il y en a plusieurs. Merci. Entre autres aussi, et c'est pas peu de choses, euh, il y a trois euh, traductrices euh, qui s'affairent à traduire chacun des mots de Joseph, et, et les miens aussi, je crois, peut-être. <rire> oui, j'ai un babaye en haut, là. Alors, il y a Tatiana et euh, Isabelle et Sarah qui sont là, qui font ce, ce, ce travail joyeusement en plus. Alors, on peut vraiment se réjouir. 
So I was uh, saying that we're in a field of generosity here because you bought a ticket to support uh, an organization that is doing good work uh, through North Insight and uh, all the volunteers that we just applauded were standing up and there's three uh, translators who are uh, joyfully and generously uh, offering their time today and Joseph is offering uh, his uh, presence and wisdom and time to us uh, today. So we can, uh, we can relax into this and enjoy that being held in this field of uh, generosity, if you want. <laughs> um, a few other things. If you want to sit on a cushion, this is, uh, is not our regular setup, but if you do we really want to be on a cushion, what we'll do is we'll open the doors in the back and on the other side there's a space and you could put your cushion there and we'll make sure that the, the voice uh, uh, carries on the other side there of the doors when you enter. Um, also, there will be walking meditation later today and you can do that inside the building in the uh, atrium just where you entered. You can do this outside. There's the Le, uh, le parc Émilie uh, Gamelin on the other side, on the east side, and so and you can walk on the streets of Montreal. Um, be mindful. <laughs> There's holes also in the sidewalk. And uh, last thing is uh, there's a schedule that you can see maybe here or there on the walls, but basically we're practicing, we're eating, and then we're practicing again. And the lunch break will be from about 12.30 to 2. Yeah? Uh, ces informations-là, en français, uh, la marche, on va faire la marche méditative, vous pouvez aller dans le parc Émilie Gamelin, à l'est du, du bloc ici, là. Euh, sur les rues euh, de la, dans les rues de la ville trottoir et euh, à l'intérieur ici si vous voulez vous asseoir sur votre coussin si vous amenez votre coussin vous aimeriez vraiment être au sol on va ouvrir les portes de l'autre de, les portes derrière ici puis il y a de l'espace là-bas pour s'asseoir c'est pas le meilleur espace mais c'est ce qu'on peut faire aujourd'hui alors euh, c'est ce qu'on vous offre ensuite de ça euh, il va y avoir un lunch de 12h30 à 14h puis le reste du temps, on va pratiquer ensemble euh, avec euh, Joseph. Ça va? <laughs> Ça va. OK. <laughs> so, Joseph Goldstein, all for you. Uh, bonne journée. Merci. <coughs> well, it's good to be with all of you here again. I guess many of you were here last night as well. Um, the idea for today is to have it more of a practice day. Um, as you know, there are many different styles of meditation and many different nuances of instructions. Um, and my own temperament leads me to uh, kind of synthesize the different uh, suggestions and techniques that I found helpful. So today you'll be getting something of a mishmash. Is that in French somehow? <laughs> uh, of w a way of practice, you know, and m most of it will be familiar to you. But I'd like to emphasize today 
not only the technique or the techniques of mindfulness, you know, and what it is that we should be paying attention to, but also what we learn from being mindful. Because mindfulness is really just the first step. It's becoming attentive to what's arising. And as we saw last night, there are many nuances to how we're being attentive. Are we being attentive with openness? Are we being attentive with aversion? Are we being attentive with grasping? And so we want to really see and examine to establish a baseline of mindfulness or awareness with whatever's arising along with that balance of mind, that openness of mind, that equanimity, you know, that's not pushing things away, that's not holding on. And then from that place of awareness, of balanced awareness, what is it that we're learning? What are we seeing about the nature of our experience? Because that's the wisdom piece. Mindfulness gets us there. And then when we look through being mindful, we begin to see the deeper nature of our experience, of all the things that are arising, how they're arising, uh, different levels of it. And so during the day, I'll just point at various times to both classical insights that arise for everybody, but also uh, just some things that I have been noticing and practicing uh, in my own meditation over these last years. When I go on retreat, almost always there's just some new angle, you know, some new understanding that arises. Maybe it's from just a single line in a text that I might have read many, many times, but this time, you know, it takes on a new meaning and transforms my practice in a certain way. Uh, so I'd just like to share some of those during the course of the day and see if they're helpful for you as well. So we'll begin as we began last night, you know, taking a comfortable seated posture and one advantage of this kind of seating uh, uh, is that uh, I think if they're reasonably comfortable for you, uh, you can really relax. You know, you can, you can settle back into a certain ease of the posture. At the same time, maintaining a certain quality, I'd, I call it a quality of dignity in it. You know, so you're not just kind of slumping over. Or you're sitting and might be quite comfortable and relaxed, but, you know, it feels as if the spine is upright and there's a quality of alertness in the mind and in the body. So it's both the phrase I use in describing the practice. It's to be relaxed, but not casual. You know, so there's, there's, a, there's a certain intentionality to how we're sitting. So just as a preface to these first instructions, very often meditation instructions in 
Vipassana inside meditation, uh, begins with the body and the breath. This is very common because it's very noticeable. It's a very easy uh, object of experience to connect with. You know, we all have bodies and we can all feel the body and everybody breathes uh, until they don't. And so this is a very basic, fundamental way of establishing mindfulness. But there are different ways of attending to the breath. And I just wanted to mention two of them. You can experiment with both. As we settle into the body, as we did last night, there is a phrase in the Buddha's discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. In Pali, it's called the Satipatthana Discourse. So this is the fundamental teaching on mindfulness. And there's one phrase in it that a few years ago was one of those phrases that kind of jumped out at me as I was on retreat. And I started using it in a different way, and it changed the way I practiced. So I just wanted to suggest it to you in case uh, you haven't heard it on some of the uh, talks. (coughs) There is a phrase where the Buddha says, be mindful, and then kind of in quotes, as if it's a direct statement, there is a body. Be mindful, quote, there is a body. Quote, to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So this is the instruction. It's actually repeated quite often. So there are two elements in that instruction. One is, and this is what I found so helpful, to actually use the phrase silently in the mind, occasionally, there is a body. There is a body. There is a body. And I found it very helpful as a way of simply and very gently reminding the attention, yes, there is a body. Just settle settle into the body. It's nothing complicated. It's nothing you need fantastic concentration for. It's just that awareness. There is a body. It provides a framework. That, that phrase provides a frame of the awareness of the body to then be aware of whatever is arising within it. And so this is one of the differences in how we can be attending to the breath. Because when we say there is a body, at a certain point, you will be feeling, you'll be noticing the body is breathing. That's part of what's happening in the body. Now, generally, the instructions, classically, the instructions have been more to zero in on the body, to really narrow the attention, to feel very precisely the rising and the falling of the abdomen or the in and out of the nose. So we can feel this kind of uh, attempt or effort to narrow the attention just to the breath. And this is a good way to practice. It really develops a strong 
and fine one-pointedness, you know, in that narrowness of attention. But I also found it very revealing and helpful at times not to narrow the attention, but to keep the wider frame, there is a body, and then simply within the frame, being aware that the body is breathing. So that there's not a zeroing in on the breath, we're keeping the wider context, but within that, the feeling of the body breathing also becomes clear. Is this difference clear? I think it would be interesting just for you to experiment and see. Uh, Because I had been doing so many years on the narrowing of the attention, I found it uh, very helpful and revealing to not narrow the attention to keep the frame of the whole body, and to do that by repeating the phrase occasionally, there is a body. Not not every moment, but periodically, there is a body. And then simply settling in and feeling the body breathing within that. Uh, It may be that you'll find that is both more relaxed and that there is less tendency to influence the breath in some way. Because sometimes when we're zeroing, narrowing the attention on the breath, unconsciously we may be pulling it a little bit or pushing it or influencing how we're breathing right, in a very subtle way. But if we're using there is a body, just settle back and just allowing the body to breathe, you may find that there's less of that influence and the breath just becomes a natural function of the body sitting here. So I'd like to try, you know, and just have uh, some time of your experimenting with this so you get a a taste of this possibility. Um, And then there are many things that can be discovered Uh, once you have some feeling for this particular way of practice. Um, So are there any particular questions just about this instruction, not about anything else? Is it clear? Okay, so we'll we'll sit for about, I don't know, uh, 10, 10, 15 minutes. And I'll occasionally just uh, repeat a few words reminding you. I say sit and begin, just sit and know you're sitting. And intermittently use the phrase, there is a body, as a way of just settling into the feeling of the whole body. within that frame, but not zeroing in on it, be aware of the body breathing. The body breathes in, the body breathes out.
within the larger space there is a body, in addition to feeling the body breathing, you may also be aware of different sounds. The ambient sounds in the room, the sound of my voice. Let them also be simple arisings in that space of awareness contained in the frame, there is a body. It's all arising effortlessly. The body breathing, different sounds.
When you notice the mind wandering, getting lost in a thought or an image, as soon as you become aware of the mind wandering, simply notice that and come back to the awareness of the body sitting. There is a body. Re-establishing the connection. There is a body. Feeling the body breathing. Aware of different sounds. Be mindful, there is a body, just to the extent necessary for clear knowing. Be aware of it clearly, to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. If you can sustain the awareness, there is a body. Knowing the body breathing. Knowing sounds. Clear knowing, continuous mindfulness. Staying very relaxed, but not casual.
as you're sitting with the awareness there is a body keeping that open frame in which you may be feeling sensations of the body breathing hearing sounds within that frame there is a body you may also be feeling other bodily sensations maybe there's strong sensations in particular places maybe there's simply background sensations you can include the awareness of them in this field of openness there's no need to zero your attention in on the sensation but simply be aware that that is another arising experience within the frame there is a body sometimes these sensations or the bodily sensations come into the foreground of the attention and the breath or sounds may go to the background sometimes the other bodily sensations are in the background even as you're noticing the body breathing in and out so simply be with the flow of your experience however it unfolds but including the awareness of different bodily sensations as part of what may be arising within this larger frame there is a body
if at times the mind feels (coughs) inclined to narrow the attention just on the breath or a particular sensation, that also is fine to do. Can narrow the attention on that particular flow of sensation, the breath, or other bodily sensations, and be with that for some time, and then again open the field. You can really learn to be flexible with how you're using your attention. So before we move on to some of the ways of applying this in the walking meditation, I'm just interested if you have any particular questions on the instructions or your experience in the sitting that we've just done. And if you do, you could come up to one of the mics. Question? Uh, I, I had the thought, uh, what is this, there is a body? You have thoughts, what is? This, there is a body. 
That's I wonder a, what thoughts you might have attached to that. That's a good thought to have. <laughs> what is this body? And it's going to be revealed as we do the walking. It will become clearer. Sorry, maybe I didn't express myself properly. Uh, I had the thought, what is this? There is a body. So what is this thought, there is a body? Maybe I'm not clear. So are you asking the thought, what is a body, well, is a thought? Yes. What is this thought, there, yes. So are you asking about what is the nature of a thought? Uh, no, it's, it felt uh, like um, I was uh, looking down on the body, thinking right. the thought. Okay, why don't I, I'm not sure I'm exactly understanding, but I think it may, my sense is it may be answered okay. as we continue a little bit. And if it doesn't, ask again. Uh, I just, I just want to say, um, having meditated for, for, for many years and long periods of time, close at, to the mic, long periods of time, and this is just a 10-minute thing that we did. Um, my awareness was that when you kept saying there is a body, I felt like stop, <laughs> because um, I realized the discomfort I have in my own body. And, and it's not necessarily a pain or an ache or anything like that. It's the discomfort of living at that time, in any case, in, in my body. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to share that. I, um... Right. Well, that's one of the things that's revealed in meditation are all the both conscious and unconscious attitudes we bring to our experience. You know, and so we're carrying a lot of conditioning about the body right. and how we feel about the body yeah. and our own bodies and being in a body. And so it's a big, rich arena. And just by this simple exercise of, okay, there's a body and settling in, a lot of this starts to reveal itself. Yeah. On that level. You know, you think you worked all that shit out already. <laughs> <laughs> it's still here. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, but just, just to say that even though you are seeing some of the same old conditioning come up, it's possible, and it's possible to do this quite quickly, that a shift in your attitude about the conditioning can take place. So instead of, oh, here I am in the body again and I don't like it, it's some, some variation of that. If that's seen clearly, that attitude itself can be seen as just a passing thought, what? where you're not, you're not identified with it. And so actually you're freeing yourself from being locked in to that conditioning, even as it's happening. You see it, oh yeah, there's, there's that conditioning, that's all it is. Um, so there's a lot, there's, there's a lot that will reveal itself. Thank you. I liked this one because I always had a problem understanding the very narrow instructions to follow your breath. I never really got anywhere with that. 
Um, and as I was following this, I, thoughts would come up and I realized that um, you go where your thought goes. Like you actually feel like you're there. Your body has sensations based on whatever you're thinking. And then when you say, you know, there's a body, then you're back in your body. Mm. And you, it's like saying, be here now, you know, and not be in some made-up yes. fantasy land or past or future or something that isn't going to happen and your body reacts yes. as yes. if it's happening. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, be before we start uh, doing the walking meditation, I just want to do a little exercise which will provide perhaps some kind of framework for different ways of paying attention in walking. Okay. So this is a very simple exercise, and many of you may be familiar with it. So if you just hold your hands together, just very simply. And pretend for a moment that you've never meditated. Right? You, you don't know anything about this. And maybe you even think it's a little weird. And then I or somebody comes up to you, again, you've never meditated, and asks, what are you feeling? I think for the non-meditator, the most normal response would be, I feel my hands, right? Or I feel my hands touching. Would you agree? I mean, that's kind of a normal response. Uh, but for meditators, it's a whole different story. Okay, so what do you feel? What do some of you feel? Burning in the index. What? Burning in the index. Okay, burning in the index. Pulse. Harmonious energy. Harmonious energy. Pulse. Pulse. Tingling. Tingling. Yeah. Numbness. Great. Pressure. All, all kinds of sensations, right? When you're on the level of feeling sensations of pressure, of tingling, of pulse, of all the things you described, and you're simply feeling those sensations, what has happened to the notion of hand? The notion of hand has disappeared, right? And, and what we're really feeling are just those changing sensations. So this is itself is a very, even though it seems very simple, a very significant meditative move. Because the notion of hand is a concept. In other words, and it's a concept that comes a lot from a combination of what we see, the form of it, and the sensations that we're feeling. But we put it all together and create a concept, oh, there's a hand, right? which is a mental construct. But when we're actually in the felt experience of what's going on, 
we see that hand disappears and it's just these changing sensations. Why is this of any interest? And the reason this is a doorway to really deeper meditative insight, when we're on the level of concept hand, the concept doesn't change. I have a hand today, a hand yesterday, a hand tomorrow. And because the concept doesn't change, we live in the often unconscious assumption that the hand is something substantial in itself that's basically unchanging. We're not changing very much. There's a hand. And yet when we're on the level of direct experience of the sensations, we see that the sensations are changing. They're changing moment to moment. We begin to see that on that level, there's nothing substantial called hand. That that's a concept that we've created. And the concept suggests to us permanence. Whereas on the level of sensation and direct experience, We've dropped beneath the level of concept into what we're actually feeling, and that's when we're entering into the direct experience of this body, this whole body, as a flow of changing energy, changing sensations. Because the hand is just one uh, representation of the experience of the whole body. You follow? So instead instead of feeling... This body is something solid and stable and basically unchanging, even though it changes. We know it changes over time and ages, but not on a moment-to-moment level. And so because we're not seeing that moment-to-moment change of the energy system of the body, it's much, much easier to become attached to it. This is the body, it's pretty solid. Not only that, it's my body. And so we create a whole sense of I and mine because we haven't dropped to the level of just seeing our experience of the body being one of a flow of changing sensations. So is this clear so far? This is very important. And and this understanding can go very deep. The more we enter into the level beneath concepts, the more we explore the truth of the changing, ever-changing, rapidly changing nature, not only of the body, but of all experience. And so that really begins to change our relationship uh, to our lives. Okay, we'll be saying much more about this, but I just wanted to point out the significance of this very simple shift. So in the walking, what I found, going back to the phrase, there is a body, it's, it's a little bit ironic in a way, because you would think using the phrase, there is a body, would lead you to the same understanding there is a hand. Right? Because body itself is a concept. However, 
my experience has been, and also working with lots and lots of meditators, using that phrase, there is a body, it's not meant as kind of a metaphysical statement that there is a body, that there is a substantial body. That's not the point of the phrase. The point of the phrase is simply to settle into that larger framework in which we can experience the changing flow, the changing nature of the sensations, the flow of sensations of the breath or of different sounds. So now we'll take some time for walking and you can find some place, you know, in the building outside, and maybe take, you know, 20 minutes or so to do some walking exercise. Basically, find some place uh, where you can walk back and forth, but it can be a longer distance. You don't have to necessarily be in just a, a short space. Whatever is comfortable for you. And I'd like you to notice these different levels of perception. So one level of perception is that, yes, there are feet and legs and a body and I'm walking. So just the normal, the normal conventional perception of what we're doing. So just become aware of that. And, and, and see if you can even become aware that somewhere in the mind there is an image or a form of the foot or leg. You know, it may not be, it may not be very conscious, but It's there, right? We have some sense of, yeah, there's a foot, there's a leg, just like normal, normal, normal people would say there is a hand. So be normal people for a while. <laughs> but then switch <laughs> and go from normal to meditative. And here's where it gets interesting using the phrase, there is a body when walking. And this is, you can be walking at a, you know, it doesn't have to be at a super slow speed, just even walking at a, a normal speed or slightly slower than normal. Drop the phrase and use the phrase, there is a body as you're walking and pay attention to what you're experiencing as you use that phrase. Okay, so it's very similar to what you did in the sitting. There is a body, but then you use that as a frame. Oh, yeah, the body is breathing and feeling those sensations. There's other sensations happening, there are sounds. The same thing in the walking. There is a body, it's just creating the frame. So then you're walking and just be aware of what you're experiencing within that frame. And what I think you may find, and this is, this is where it's just interesting, uh, even though we're using the phrase, there is a body to get us there, we begin to experience, on the experience level, there actually isn't a body. All we're experiencing, or the way I describe it, we're basically experiencing sensations in space. You know, that, that, when we're on the level of actual sensations, not the form or the image of foot or leg. So we're walking, there is a body, just create the frame and then just see what you're experiencing. 
And you may experience that the body disappears. And the experience, just, just different sensations arising and passing in space, along with sounds, you know, and anything else that may be arising. Um, again, if at times it feels like your mind wants to narrow the attention, that's fine to do. You could drop into just the, the sensations of the foot or leg moving, where you're not holding the bigger frame, or just as if I were feeling the arm moving, and really very carefully feeling the sensations of movement, of what I'm calling arm. So it's very possible and fine to sometimes narrow the focus, but I'd like you to experiment somewhat with keeping the larger frame right, in which you're simply allowing whatever sensations uh, to be there. Does this seem clear? Are there any questions about just this instruction for the walking? Okay. I, this, this particular use of the phrase, there is a body, in the walking meditation, uh, really transformed my meditation. Because for 35 years, I had been narrowly focusing, you know, which brought its own benefit. You know, it brought it to a great depth. But this opened up to a whole different way just of understanding. Uh, so I'd be just interested in your experience uh, as you do it. So it's 10 after 11. Why don't you plan uh, to be back here at 11.30? And you'll have to keep track yourself. Thank you. Mindful there is a body uh, to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. Well, I'd like to make a few comments about that walking practice and then have another uh, short sitting 
and then we'll open it for some questions if you have about uh, your experience. So one of the things I noticed when I was doing some of the walking practice myself, um, and something I didn't mention was because that there were quite a lot of people walking and having to navigate you know, among so many people, that one of the aspects of experience that we usually don't bring attention to very mindfully is that of seeing. And usually we just buy into the conventional reality of what's being seen, and we're living in the world of what's being seen, and our minds gets, can get caught up in a lot of judgments and comments about what's being seen. But actually, in this walking practice here and in general, it is possible to be doing that walking and simply including seeing as part of what's arising in the bigger frame. So it's not like we're walking and there's a body and we're feeling you know, the points of sensation of the body as moving, and then what's being seen is something different than that. Right? The seeing itself can become simply part of what we're aware of. And I had a very striking example of the importance of this. You know, for most of us uh, who, you know, enjoy uh, reasonably good sight, uh, seeing is probably the predominant sense field that we live in, and probably the one we notice mindfully the least. You know, because sounds have a strong impact, so we usually become aware when we're hearing a strong sound. We certainly are more aware of the body, but it's like we're swimming in the world of what's being seen without really being mindful that we're seeing, right? And we're just living in the whole world of concepts that we create about what's being seen. So just one example of this that happened to me on retreat and which illustrated the importance of bringing mindfulness to seeing. I was on retreat at uh, IMS, the Inside Meditation Society, and a lot of, a lot of meditators, you know, 95, 100 meditators. And I noticed that every time I went into the dining room for meals, my mind would have a comment about almost everybody. <laughs> it was ridiculous. You know, I liked what they were wearing. I didn't like what they were wearing. They were moving too quickly. They were moving too slowly. They took too much food. They didn't take enough food. It was just this endless litany of comment. So after a while, you know, when I finally noticed that, uh, I said, this is ridiculous. And then I began to see, well, why? <coughs> why are there all these commenting and judging thoughts in the mind? And I realized that they were all coming because I was not being mindful of seeing. So what I started to do on that retreat and since then, whenever I go like on retreat into the dining room or where there are a lot of people around, 
for some time as a practice exercise, all I will do is note seeing. That's all I'm paying attention to, that field, that sense field. So I'll go through the whole, the, the lunch line, getting the food, sitting at the table, seeing, 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 reminding myself, yes, I'm seeing. It was amazing. It was like 98% of all the comments and judgments were eliminated because I was being mindful that I was seeing instead of having the mind jump out through the eye door, land on what was being seen, and then creating all kinds of judgments and comments. Do you follow this? It was, it was amazing. It was so simple and so freeing. You know, of a pattern that had been quite well established, all that commenting, judging mind. And it was all simply because I was not mindful that I was seeing. Uh, so I would suggest, not only in the context of even a like, mini retreat like this, but uh, out in the world, to really bring that aspect of mindfulness to your life. Because, as I say, we live mostly in the world of what's being seen. That is the predominant field for most of us. And yet we are totally caught unmindfully in that and create whole worlds of concepts about what's being seen. uh, And then live in that, and live in that reactivity. This is not to say that we don't respond to what's being seen, but we can be doing it mindfully. So when I was in India, this goes back many years, you know, when I was first practicing there in Bodhgaya, uh, in the town there was a working elephant. You know, and sometimes I'd be walking into the village <coughs> and the elephant would be coming the other way. I didn't simply say, seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> I stepped out of the way. <laughs> Big center contest between elephant and Joseph. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that we don't respond to what's being seen. But we're doing it with awareness, we're doing it with mindfulness, with wisdom, with discernment. We're responding appropriately rather than having this endless a litany of judgments and comments and reactions and all of that mental activity that goes on a good part of the time uh, because we're not mindful that we're seeing. So that was one piece uh, that I noticed could well be brought into this walking exercise here. Can we just include that? The other comment I wanted to make about the walking uh, was that in terms of the particular uh, suggestion I was making in terms of there is a body, you know, just using that as the frame and seeing what your experience is, um, I realized there were certain constraints because of where we are now. But keep in mind that you can do that at any time, at any speed. You're just living your life, you're walking down the street, You don't have to be in any particular meditative uh, stylistic form. 
you're just walking. You just, but if you remember, if you're mindful, you're just walking, oh, there is a body. Even in that very normal way of activity, just that settling back into that frame will reveal that all that you're really experiencing are these different sensations in space and perhaps sights and sounds. And the solidity, the sense of the solidity of the body and this body is me, that really begins to fall away. But I wanted to emphasize that this can be done in a very normal circumstances. You don't have to be walking slowly or you know, in any special way. It's just remembering. Okay, the, the so the first, the first really important meditative shift is what I described earlier, is when we go from the concept of things, like hand, right, to the actual felt sensations, because on that level we're experiencing, in, in many ways, the first direct, immediate, vivid experience of the impermanence of it all. Right? The sensations are changing all the time. It's like a, a current, a river of changing sensations, which we call hand. But we want to drop into that direct perception of impermanence. So the next big meditative understanding, uh, which I mentioned last night and has tremendous implications in our lives, it's, it's just one of the very key elements, is the very deeply conditioned habit we have of liking what's pleasant and not liking what's unpleasant. And you can substitute liking and not liking, clinging to and avoiding, grasping and aversion. It's like we're going for the pleasant, we're trying to avoid or keep away the unpleasant. And this is this is normal. This is the normal way we're living, living our lives. So it's not that, you know, if you notice yourself doing this, there should be all this self-judgment. Oh, there I go, hating the unpleasant again. <laughs> Which is more just hating the unpleasant. <laughs> no, this is, this, is, this is our normal conditioning. So this is, this is quite natural. However, it's problematic because we cannot control the flow. We can influence to some extent, and we, we do try to influence it, but we can't really control the arising of pleasant and unpleasant. I mean, can you say in your sitting in your life, let me only experience pleasant sensation. Let me only experience pleasant emotions, pleasant thoughts. No. It's, Things are coming out of causes and conditions which are very complex, multifaceted, and our life is made up of pleasant experiences and unpleasant experiences, and that's true for everyone. The reason for giving emphasis to this is that if we're attached and really holding on in some kind of unhealthy way, obsessive way, uh, attached to the pleasant, then we're going to suffer 
when it ine inevitably changes. You know, it will. If we're attached to youth, we're going to not feel so great as we get older. Or even, and this is maybe a little even counterintuitive, but if we're attached in an unhealthy way to health, then how is our mind going to be when the body is not healthy? You know, and that's going to happen at one point or another. So the attachment to the pleasant, as I said last night about some other things, the attachment to the pleasant does not enhance the pleasure. In fact, it detracts from it. So I'm not suggesting we should pull away from pleasant. No, pleasant is nice. Pleasant is pleasant. But it is impermanent. It's not going to last. And our conditioning is to, I want the pleasant. I don't want the unpleasant. That's the cause of the stress in our lives, the suffering in our lives. Or on the other side, trying to build a defensive wall in our lives against everything unpleasant. Okay, I'll live in a certain way and just keep everything unpleasant away. You know, it just doesn't work. And that very act of living in that way creates its own tension. We're not, we're not living in a free way. So in meditation, meditation is a way of understanding this fundamental principle of life, that our life consists of pleasant and unpleasant in all the realms. You know, pleasant and unpleasant physical sensations, pleasant and unpleasant sounds of thoughts, of emotions, of tastes, everything. And that's why this particular matrix of pleasant and unpleasant is so critical because it's pervasive and touches every single aspect of our experience. It's either pleasant or unpleasant, and sometimes it's called neutral, if it's neither. So in our practice, what we need to do is slowly decondition our more normal response of pleasant, I like, I want. Unpleasant, push away, I don't like, let's get rid of. That's our normal response. Meditation is a way of deconditioning that. So pleasant comes, whatever it is, pleasant bodily sensations, pleasant thoughts, pleasant fantasies, whatever. We are acknowledging, we're being mindful, we actually can even be noting, oh, pleasant, this is pleasant. And we feel it, we're not, we're not, we're not pushing it away, we're feeling the pleasantness, but without attachment, without grasping, knowing that it is a changing feeling. Pleasant, it's nice when it's there, it's going to go. When unpleasant feeling comes, instead of that moment of panic, you know, oh my God, there's pain, you know, of whatever sort, we decondition that response, oh, it's like I was saying with the fear, it's okay. It's okay to feel unpleasant. It's okay to feel the unpleasant of a physical pain. So instead of the aversion or the fear or the pulling back from it, we coach ourselves. Because we need to coach ourselves because our conditioning is the opposite. So we need to remind ourselves, okay, there's, there's a painful feeling here. 
Okay, it's okay. Just let me feel it. Let me relax into it. And we see that first the, the, re, the ability to relax, relax into it itself eases the mind tremendously because we're not in that kind of tight, contracted, reactive state. We're in a, it's okay, it's okay. It's unpleasant. It's, it's not that it becomes pleasant all of a sudden. It may be painful. And it's okay to feel it. So this is a huge reordering of our inner life, our inner conditioning. And it just has tremendous implications for how freely we live in our lives as conditions keep changing for us. Whatever the condi- you know, conditions of our bodies, of our relationships, of our emotions, of our work, of the politics in the world, this pleasant, unpleasant is happening on every single level. So how we're relating to that really will determine basically our own level of peace and happiness and ease. So there is a way of practicing this very specifically in meditation. I'll just spend a few minutes, you know, we'll do another, another short set. Uh, practicing in the same way that we did this morning. But giving particular emphasis as you're sitting, and just as we did, you know, settling in, there's a body, feeling the breath. And for the most part, for most people, although not always, feeling the body breathing is pretty neutral. Usually, it's not pleasant, it's not unpleasant. So that's a neutral experience. But as you're sitting in that very open space, just there is a body and aware of the body breathing, aware of sounds, you may well become aware of different other bodily sensations. Right? And so I would suggest that in this particular sitting, uh, you particularly notice as these other sensations arise whether you are experiencing them as pleasant or unpleasant or possibly neutral. And it doesn't have to be intense, although maybe there will be some intense sensation, but maybe it's subtle, you know, and just maybe there's a feeling of tension or tightness or pressure. You know, they may have even a slight... Uh, flavor of you, you're feeling it as being unpleasant. So notice that. Oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. And then notice your response to that. Are you relaxed in that awareness? Are you just settled back, acknowledging, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. But the mind is even, it's not reactive. Or are you noticing unpleasant, painful, I don't like. You know, see if that's the reaction. And then notice what the effect in the body is and in the mind of, I don't like. Really notice, notice what happens from that. And the same thing if you're experiencing some pleasant sensation. Maybe there's a nice light vibration or a softness you know, or a tingling. Or a lot of pleasant sensations can arise. If you become aware, notice that. And make an, oh, this pleasant, pleasant. 
And can you be in that same openness of just feeling it, being with it, but without wanting it to continue? I've noticed this so many times in my practice when I've had some really nice, pleasant sensation, and then in the back or front of my mind, okay, how can I keep this going? That's just a kind of greed or grasping. Uh, and they, they always go anyway. And there's more to say about this, which I'll talk about this afternoon, which actually leads to even more profound understandings. But for now, let's focus on just the awareness of what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, making a note to highlight it, and then noticing whatever reaction or non-reaction there is in the mind about it. Does the instruction seem clear? Okay, so we'll sit for about 15 minutes. I'll probably speak a little less during this sitting since you are now all experienced meditators.
there's some time now if you have any questions about anything you experienced this morning or the instructions. I have a question about the notion of the reality of the hand versus the reality of the sensations in the hand. And I feel why not turn it exactly the other way around and say the hand is undeniably real while the sensations are transitory. And then I think, well, why is there a hierarchy at all? Isn't that also imposing uh, an abstract notion on all of it? And where do you go with that? <laughs> well, I think that within the question, you uh, opened the doorway to the answer. Uh, and that is... Okay, I'm going to just drop down to uh, the quintessential uh, statement of the Buddha in terms of what he taught. He said, underneath all of the philosophy and the descriptions and everything, he said he really just teaches one thing. He teaches suffering and the end of suffering. That's the point of it all. So then the question is, well, what is the cause of suffering in our lives? If we want to come to the end of it, we need to understand the cause. And of course, this is the classical formulation of the Four Noble Truths. You know, this suffering, its cause, its end, and the way to the end. One particular way of understanding the cause of suffering in our lives is that when we are attached or hold on to that which in its very nature will change, we suffer. I mean, it's obvious if we're holding on, you know, and if you're holding on to a rope and the rope is being pulled through your hand, the more tightly you hold on, the more rope burn you get. Right? So, one aspect of the practice is just to see on all levels that things are in constant change. So even the, even the hand as a, as a concept, we may not be seeing a change moment to moment as we are in seeing the sensations, but certainly over years we can see the change in the hand. And certainly when the body dies, it's going to change. So the point of it all is really focusing, the point of the meditation in many different ways, and there are many different uh, techniques and methods for doing it, but to keep drawing the mind down to the insight into impermanence on deeper and deeper levels, because it's that insight that deconditions grasping. And the less grasping, the less suffering. So that's, that's the trajectory of it all and the point of it all, rather than as some philosophical uh, postulation. It's a practical thought then. Yeah. Thank you. Joseph, I, um, over time I'm reading a book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons for Difficult Times, and 
from Mr. Tyler. He's talked about making eye contact. <clears throat> Often what happens to me more and more, I say bonjour to someone or hello, and they answer me and they don't look at me. You talked about seeing. Could you comment on that, please? Well, it somewhat depends. Uh, some combination of uh, different different conditions of why people might not be making eye contact, uh, and there's a whole range. So it would be very hard to say specifically in any one situation. Uh, so just a few examples: when people are in retreat. Very often we suggest avoid eye contact just to have people, you know, stay within their inner frame of reference. Although now we're including more being aware of seeing, but not so much eye contact with people, you know. But that's for a very specific purpose. Out in the world, people might be avoiding eye contact maybe they're just lost in their own world, mm. you know, their own particular mind drama that's going on at the time. Maybe there's fear. You know, some people are just, they, they don't want to connect. There's a, there's a certain fear, fear, fearfulness of connecting. Uh, maybe somebody's just in a grumpy mood <laughs> and they don't want to eye contact. Uh, but I think from your perspective or our perspective, if the motive is one of uh, uh, goodwill, yes. I think it's worth just, you keep on exuding the goodwill. People respond how they respond. You know, there's one monk, uh, a Sri Lankan monk, Bane Gunaratna, I know that those of you know him, now he's in his 80s, a wonderful monk. He goes on a five-mile walk every day, wherever he is, walks along the road. And he's in monk's robes, and every car that passes, he waves. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny. I mean, so sometimes he's in Barry, which is this small rural town, you know. And he's walking along the road. <laughs> and I'm just... I'm a part of this in my own projection and imagination, but sometimes you can get a sense. A lot of people just wave back, you know, and a lot of people are kind of looking at him like he's a little odd. <laughs> so there'll be all kinds of responses to it. But he goes on waving. Mm. You know? mm. so. Thank you. <laughs> I have a question concerning the mindfulness of seeing. Uh, in my own practice, I find it helpful to use labels, and I was wondering if that could apply to mindfulness of seeing, or are we trying to get rid of the labels <laughs> that we... Well, I think, I think this, labels can be very helpful, but I think particularly labeling seeing rather than what's being seen, mm -hmm. right? So you really, the label is just, it's not the label that is important. What's important is the being mindful. So the label is just like a coach or a, a reminder, oh yes, this is seeing. 
And I found it really helpful in the situation I described because it was so easy and the mind was so conditioned to again be pulled out into what was being seen, landing out there and then having all kinds of judgments. So the labeling, the noting really helped me stay back. And it was, it was, more, it was more the seeing became receptive rather than the mind going out it was just receiving the sight. Um, there's a whole story. I'm, maybe I'll try to abbreviate it. Just the, the power of, of playing with this. Um, many of you are probably familiar with the uh, artist Kandinsky. And he was supposedly the first artist to really paint in a purely abstract way. And there's a story of his going to an exhibition of Monet in St. Petersburg and the series of paintings called Monet's Haystacks, where he painted haystacks at different times of day and through different times of the year. You know, and, and Kandinsky, in seeing this exhibition, he, he had a transformative revelation. You know, as he was looking so intently at the haystacks, he began to see that what was really there was just color and form and brushstrokes. There was no haystack. There was no, no nothing that we would ascribe a conventional reality to. It was all just made up of, you know, colors and forms. And, and he, he described, there's an article describing this, it's as if he just fell into a whole new universe of color and form and light and shadow, free of concepts. And of course, that's, that then informed you know, his painting and the whole movement and art, this new way of seeing. And it came about from seeing rather than you know, getting caught in the conceptual overlay of what's being seen. So I think it's a powerful practice. Mm -hmm. But again, when the elephant is walking at you, you don't want to just see color and form. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you for presenting well, your presence. Um, I really, really enjoy meditation. It's something that I have more fun and appreciate more and more. And when I'm alone at home, things are going great. Here, people You're are all... Closer mid. to the microphone. I'm saying um, meditation is highly, high, highly appreciated, yeah. and I find it great when I'm alone at home or here with people meditating. Uh, my challenge gets into staying an observer or staying mindful in a relationship, and I appreciate particularly the comment or the question of... Uh, the person who spoke before me, when my three children come at me and start talking, my partner and everything, being the observer and talking at the same time, it like, it's like if mind becomes really overwhelmed and just cannot, cannot stay mindful because there's too much coming. So it's a bit a question of how to stay present in speed or how to be present in over... I, I don't know what to say how... When the external source, my waves, I start to kind of be peaceful more peaceful than I used to be with. Whatever experience is going in that body is not so bad. But when it's coming from the outside, I'm, I'm a bit kind of still kind of, hmm, what do I do with that? 
Uh, it's challenging. <laughs> but uh, so when I was a kid, really young, I lived, I lived up in the country, very few people. So sometimes we'd go visit uh, relatives in the city, you know, and near where they lived, there was a uh, for some for some reason, maybe old kids like to do this, I don't know, but I just like to stand by the side of the road watching the cars go by. There were so many cars, and where I lived, there, were, there weren't that many cars. So this was my great entertainment. <laughs> but I learned something, even, even as a kid. There are two ways of watching speeding cars right, go by. So at first, what I was doing was Headache. Another way was just keeping really perfectly still and letting the cars cross my field of vision. So I could stay still and the cars were going by just as fast, but I didn't have to do anything to be aware of them all. They were doing the work. So there is some analogy there, <laughs> which is even when a lot's going on, the tendency is to be doing that, trying, trying to cover all the bases and taking care of everything at once. It would just be an interesting experiment. And, you know, it would take practice and exploring a little bit of just what it would be like and again, this, this would take practice of just seeing if you can find that center space and then dealing, even if it's rapidly, dealing with each thing that comes up as it's coming up, rather than looking ahead or looking behind and trying to cover it all at once. Uh, because that's when the mind can really get agitated and feel overwhelmed. But moment to moment, Oh, screaming, screaming. <laughs> you know. Uh, making a mess. <laughs> whatever, whatever, the, whatever the various activities are. Uh, so that would be interesting. That would, that would be an interesting... And in all that, uh, of course, essential in that situation and in, in all of our life situation, um, is to really be monitoring and attending your own inner response and reactivity as things are going on. You know, so if, if you're noticing that the mind, the heart, is getting wound up in some way, so then it might be time to consciously and even impose Okay, kids, one minute break, <laughs> you know, whatever, <laughs> however, however you could figure out how to do that. Uh, but just to realize, okay, I just need, I need a few breaths here. Uh, because otherwise we get caught up in the momentum of our reactivity, and it just starts to spiral out of control. Thank you. You know, for me, one of the joys of meditation is to see it not only as a particular technique, 
which uh, there are many techniques and methods, but more to appreciate the creative aspect of, okay, there's a situation in my mind, in my experience, what's the cause of the suffering or the stress here? How, where's, where's the place to unhook that? And so we really bring an investigative mind to our particular situation, and that's what makes it interesting. We, we like fi find our own ways. Once we know the principle of, okay, I need to unhook from this reactivity. Thank you. One, one of my meditative mantras is, whatever works. <laughs> you know, it's like we're caught up in something or other. Okay, let's, you know, whatever works. Uh, I wanted to begin by expressing my appreciation for the very deep and profound simplicity with which you are um, sharing these teachings. And I'm circling around something that I'm not really clear about, so I'm hoping that your, your discernment will, will um, get to the heart of it. Um, I was very struck last night when you talked about the almost aesthetic quality uh, of sadness and that poignancy. And that's related to what I'm circling around. Um, I'm wondering about how passion connects with what you're talking about and eros. I don't mean just sexually, but you know the deep intensity with which we can live in life and how that connects with the non-attachment that you're talking about. Perfect. I was hoping somebody would ask that question. Thank you. <laughs> and the answer really may not answer your question, but it's a chance for me to say. <laughs> I learned that from my teacher, Manindraji. People would ask him all kinds of questions, and then he'd answer just whatever he wanted to answer. <laughs> so that was a great teaching, uh, te teaching tool. But I was talking to Pascal yesterday, uh, and we may, we may do this as a joint book. Uh, it, it, it's basically a two-paragraph book, <laughs> maybe even one paragraph. Uh, and the title of the book is The Myth of Intimacy. And you could substitute passion for that mm -hmm. or whatever word you like. So what, what is this two-paragraph book on the myth of intimacy? It's basically one sentence. <laughs> it, it's we have the common conventional understanding is that intimacy requires two. Right? And so much of our lives we're searching for that person that we can be intimate with one of the great discoveries in meditation is that the quality of intimacy is not dependent on anybody else or any particular experience. The quality of intimacy has to do with the quality of our attention. We can become intimate even to that sense of becoming one with, which would be the height of intimacy in any moment of experience when we are 
fully attentive to whatever's arising. And so very often, and this is a common experience in meditation, and I think once people kind of deepen their practice to some extent, why people find it so rewarding is that the experience sitting on your cushion or walking becomes exceedingly intimate. It's like there is no separation of oneself from the experience. There's, there's a oneness with the experience. And I have found that understanding of intimacy really carries over to relationships with other people. Taking it out of all our concepts of what an intimate relationship is, but reframing it more, what's the quality of attention in any interaction and so one of the things that I really love about teaching and on retreats, or even in this situation, you know, in, in response to questions, it's a very intimate space. You know, if, if there's a genuine kind of openness to what's being expressed and experienced, I, I often call the meditation uh, interviews 10-minute marriages <laughs> yeah, because they're very intimate. I kind of recommend the 10-minute marriage. <laughs> but <that's laughs> so, if I may, I'd just yeah. like to notice, I noticed that rather than speak about passion, you spoke about intimacy, and I get it, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. Okay, we'll just take these two, are there just two? Yeah. Two last questions. Um, for me, it was more coming back to the walking meditation. So um, I noticed that I had the, the wanting, um, a really strong wanting of closing my eyes all the time. And um, I've noticed, uh, I've been meditating um, always with eyes closed as I'm sitting. And I also notice in my yoga practice, I have a tendency all the time to close my eyes. And it feels like I could connect more with what the sensation of the body and stuff like that. But then as I was walking, you know, like it's not as functional to close your eyes. Like it wasn't that bad because we were, you know, in a line. But then I kind of asked myself, because um, I was seeing the peripheral of my body, so I had a hard time being, it's a body, like sensation, but I could see the form of my body. So that's why I, I had the tendency of closing my eyes, I think, all the time. So then I was asking myself, like, like the, the, the meditation sitting and the yoga sitting, now is it now creating a problem? Because now I'm walking and I, I don't know if you... Right. Well, it could, it could be creating an artificial limitation, not that there's anything wrong in doing that. And also, I've, I've mostly sat with my eyes closed, although in walking, generally, I, I keep my eyes open. Um, but it's, the depth of practice and what you can understand is not dependent on your eyes being closed. You know, there are certain, it, it, does, it does cut out 
you know, certain fields of perception so that you can uh, maybe experience more vividly you know, the subtle sensations in the body. So there is something that happens from that. But I have done practices where one sits with one's eyes open and eyes closed. And at first it, was, it felt a little, you could say, less deep or less vivid. But after just some practice with it, I realized that it's the same. You know, you can come to the same level of stillness, of openness, of connectedness. Uh, and so you might just experiment. You know, just take a week or two where you're just sitting, you're doing your same practice, whatever practice you're doing, but just do it with your eyes slightly open and see, see what that's like. Uh, I think you'll find after a while that it really doesn't make any difference. And it does open the possibility then of being as aware in more normal circumstances when our eyes need to be open to not to be losing ourselves in what's being seen because we practice being aware of that sense field. Mm -hmm. Thank you. My question has to do with um, <clears throat> the presentation you gave yesterday and um, on how life's experiences such as uh, the fact that grief or sadness, uh, death, sickness, you advised equanimity as opposed to indifference. And I was comparing that to other traditions such as um, Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that there are some things that you can change some things you can't, and you need to distinguish between the two and accept that some you can't change. The, the tension that I'm seeing maybe with what you presented is that there are some things that are within your sphere of influence. So are you suggesting not trying to change them if, if they're no. not? No, no, not at all. I think there's, I think there's no difference, actually. Okay in the teachings, uh, and I think I've mentioned, but perhaps passed over it quite quickly, the equanimity is just that place of, you could say clear seeing, impartiality, oh, this is, this is how it is, right? From that basis of clear seeing, then exactly what you're saying, there can be the discernment first, is this skillful, is it unskillful? Is this causing suffering or not causing suffering? So we can make that assessment. Then there's a further assessment, is this something I can change or influence or not? You know? And if it's not, and if it is something, so that's when the whole move of compassionate response comes. Compassion for oneself, compassion for others. That's what motivates us to change. If it's something that we see is unskillful, maybe out in the world, and cannot be changed. So we still see that, and we can still feel the compassion, but have the equanimity of realizing this is beyond my control. So I, it feels to me like it's the same, the same teaching. Thank you.
Okay, so now, now you're going to be faced with one incredibly difficult challenge. And that is <laughs> to stay even remotely mindful during the lunch break. Uh, and I would, I think it would be particularly helpful this, this larger frame we've been talking about. You know, there is a body. I'm just having that in the background because that can be held in any activity at any speed. As I say, you don't have to be, you know, super slow and meticulous in what you're doing, which is, you know, appropriate in some meditative conditions, situations. But in this kind of situation, where you probably be out and about and maybe going for a walk and eating, just see if you can hold or come back to, oh, there's a body, and then just being aware of whatever your experience is within that. And that includes everything. It includes all the sensations that you may feel, or the sights, or the sounds, the tastes. Uh, So just remember the instruction from the sutta that the Buddha gave. It's, it's very simple and very direct. Be mindful, quote, there is a body. So we're just using that phrase. You could say just to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So there's nothing, we don't have to struggle. We don't have to be super effortful. You know, it's just, just enough. There is a body just enough for clear knowing of what's arising and as much continuity in that as possible. And when we forget, we come back. So, have a nice lunch. Uh, we'll see you at, uh, what time did we say? Two, two o'clock. Uh, let's make it five after two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.